when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm George Parker, standing in for the honeymooning Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be talking about a mixed first full week in office for Boris Johnson. We saw him carry out a nationwide tour against a backdrop of a collapsing pound and ended with him losing the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election to the Liberal Democrats. Yet his party, according to the opinion polls, nevertheless appears to be enjoying a Boris bounce. And we'll also be discussing Mr Johnson's problems in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Could he be the Conservative and Unionist Party Prime Minister who ends up losing the union? I'm delighted to be joined by Miranda Green, our Deputy Opinion Editor, and William Wallace, our roving UK correspondent who spent time in Brecon this week, our Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey, and veteran Ireland watcher Vincent Boland. Thank you all for joining, and if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, do subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And we also love positive reviews too. So it's been an interesting week for Boris Johnson, to say the least. As he toured Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, he heard multiple warnings about the risks posed by a no-deal Brexit, the pound falling to its lowest level for two years amid fears that this was the way it was heading. The national polls looked good for Mr Johnson, but the Brecon by-election provided a sharp corrective. Winning a bigger Commons majority in an early election will be no stroll in the park. So Miranda first, do you think we learned anything about Mr Johnson's Brexit strategy during his perambulation of the kingdom? Well, I think we learned that starting off last weekend when he went to the Midlands and Manchester, that they think they've got quite a clever strategy, which is just for Boris Johnson to now be Mr Brexit, as they started calling him during the leadership campaign, and to try and pick up a lot of leave voters in the Midlands, in the North. You know, he was promising money for new transport infrastructure in the North. And then, you know, to try and consolidate and kill off that Brexit party vote everywhere, including in the South East and South West. And then obviously the week sort of as it went on didn't start to look quite so rosy because the plummeting pound is a negative for them. However much Downing Street somewhat hilariously were trying to protest that it was a positive sign because it showed that business for the first time really understood that Brexit was going to happen. I mean, I know what they mean because the markets have got this wrong for three years, but even so, that's a really weird way to react to something very negative. And then, you know, some polling data came out which showed a bit of a Boris bounce, but that he's really unpopular with female voters. And then, of course, at the end of the week, we've had the result from the Brecon by-election, which shows that this strategic decision to consolidate the pro-Brexit vote has costs because you're in danger of losing a lot of moderate voters and Remainy voters to some sort of Remain alliance headed up by the Lib Dems. So I think it's been a really interesting week because it's seen their sort of strategy become more obvious, whereas, you know, in the leadership campaign, he was slightly trying to be all things to all people. And it seemed to me at the start of the week, at least he was determined to go down that route. And as you say, throughout the week, there have been things, for example, Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, designating 
losing £2 billion for no-deal planning. But at times you felt that Boris Johnson didn't quite have the confidence in his own strategy. He started to sort of warm up to the idea of a deal and started talking in Scotland about walking 1,000 miles for a deal. Do you think he really believes in this strategy? Well, it's actually the £6 billion or more question, isn't it? Never mind, you know, any dollar sum, because the amount that they're setting aside for no deal planning is absolutely astronomical when you add it all together. And you have that extraordinary day on which Michael Gove, who's in charge of the no deal planning, said it was now the government's operating assumption Mm. that we would leave without a deal. And then Boris Johnson contradicting him and rowing back and saying we still want to have a deal. So it's very difficult to work out whether it's a very expensive bluff. But the likelihood of it actually happening is huge now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, William, you were in Brecon for this week's by-election. It was the first big electoral test for the new prime minister. What did the voters actually make of him? I think as elsewhere, he's a very divisive figure. So you do find a lot of people who were very excited, particularly when rumours got around town that he might actually be appearing and might do a sort of public walkabout. That didn't materialise in the end, but you still got that fizzle of excitement um, that he might be coming. And clearly, there was a Boris bounce in this by-election. The opinion polls that preceded his exceeding the premiership showed Jane Dodds, the Liberal Democrat candidate, about 21% ahead. That lead narrowed massively in the week after he took over. So clearly there is some popularity for Boris Johnson in that area, even if a lot of people find him pretty objectionable. And I think you got a lot of Labour voters, for example, holding their noses and voting tactically just to make life harder for him. Was Brexit the main issue on the doorstep, would you say, in Brecon and Radnorshire, given the fact the constituency voted leave back in 2016? Well, it voted very narrowly leave, mm. um, roughly reflect the national vote, actually. Uh, It's definitely a preoccupation because it's going to be a very serious issue for farmers in the area, and there's a lot of them. Sheep actually outnumber humans by 10 to 1 in in the constituency. (laughs) And I think... You know, farmers are also, uh, remember the foot and mouth uh, disease, uh, which led to a massive cull of animals about 20 years ago. And they're worried that a no-deal Brexit could lead to similar sorts of culls because the British demand for sheep wouldn't be able to cope with the, the number of sheep they have. So there's a lot of nervousness. But there's also, among some farmers, strangely, you know, there's a, there's a sort of belief in Boris magic, that somehow he's going to step mm. in and protect them, that he'll have, he has some fallback policy up his sleeve that will save them at the end of the day. So those leave voting farmers, and a lot of them did vote leave, are actually sort of quietly confident about his no Brexit strategy. It's quite quite peculiar. It is interesting, isn't it, that sheep farmers are probably the most exposed sector of the British economy to a no-deal exit, 40% tariffs on sheep meat exports, and yet quite a few of them, as you say, voted leave. It's an interesting phenomenon. Now, Miranda, there's been a lot of talk about a snap election. The Tories did better than some people expected, as William was saying, in Brecon and Radishire. If you were in number 10, would you be dashing to the polls? No, I think actually what you might have to, that's still a high possibility. But I think one of the ideas that seemed to be floated this week was more interesting, which is whether they sort of try and head off a crisis in October as the, you know, the October 31st deadline approaches by having a commons vote rather than a general election to kind of force the issue. You know, this idea that you deliberately further polarise the Brexit question by having a commons vote, which is allow me to do what I want, even if it's no deal in October versus revoke. And you then kind of force the opposition to choose in a very uncomfortable way. Obviously, if they tried that 
and it failed, you then sort of have to have a general election. But I actually think that that idea of still high risk, but less high risk than a general election might be where we sort of end up when everyone's back after the summer holidays. I mean, I completely agree with William. I think the the fact that that polling data that we had in Brecon, which was before Boris Johnson became Tory leader, which was done by Matt Singh of Number Cruncher Politics, it showed a really significant, very, very almost safe seat lead for the Lib Dems. And the fact that now with a new leader and a bit of momentum behind him, he's looking sort of healthier, you know, makes a that sort of go for a snap election thing incredibly tempting for them. But it is a big risk because if you, as we've been discussing, go for this strategy of consolidating the Brexit vote, you are risking a really significant number of moderate voters falling away in England to the Lib Dems, in Scotland to the SNP. And then you have to pick up an awful lot of seats against Labour in the North and the Midlands. You really do, which actually the Lib Dem revival will help you slightly there in some of those seats, but it's still a really, really big risk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what was also interesting about the, the Brecon result was that actually it wasn't as reassuring for the Remain alliance as, as it might have been, because if you add the Tory vote and the Brexit party vote, they actually would have won quite considerably. Yeah, the Brexit uh, party got 3,000 votes. Exactly. And the majority was only, was it 1,400, I think, in the exactly. end. Exactly. You mentioned the Remain alliance. We haven't talked about this yet, which was that the Plaid Cymru and the Greens decided not to contest that seat to give the Lib Dems a clear run as an anti-Brexit party. How did that actually work? on the ground. Did you have Plaid and Green activists campaigning for the Lib Dems? Absolutely not. You, mm. you just had them sort of disappearing, more or less. And, and actually, neither of them are that present on the ground anyway in that constituency. So essentially, they just cleared the way for the Lib Dems to campaign themselves. Right. And they had an extraordinary campaign. I mean, people came from all over the world. I met a shipping director who came from Hong Kong to, for, for his holidays. Well, he's, he escaped the protests in Hong Kong and came back to um, <laughs> campaign. <laughs> for Jane Dodds. Yeah. But I think it's very different though, isn't it? Because what's at stake for the Greens in a Remain alliance is something, quite, you know, that they would be sacrificing quite a lot if nationally they, you know, really, really went for it for the Remain alliance idea because they're such a small party, you know, their sort of survival will be a factor in, in what, what would happen in a general election. But I thought it was really noticeable that all the independent MPs, and including the ones like Anna Subri, who have remained in something, which I can't even remember <laughs> what their latest name is, Change Now or whatever, they were very much on the doorstep in Brecon, campaigning actively for the Lib Dem candidate and with a revoke Article 50 message, mm. which is even stronger than a, you know... Second referendum, yeah. yeah. And just well, just one detail of the Brecon contest, William, which many people found curious. It was caused by a recall petition by a constituents who didn't like the fact that their MP had been caught fiddling his expenses. It was odd, wasn't it, that the Tory party should choose him to refight that seat? Um, it was odd. Uh, and, and, you know, some newspapers have suggested it was because they knew they were going to lose it and then they could blame it on that. Ah. Uh, I'm not sure I subscribe to that because actually, although expenses scandals are something of a witch's incantation in UK <laughs> politics now, he is a, a very local man. He knows the constituency very well. He used to run a veterinary surgery in hay on Wye, And so he's very close to the farming community. So I think they, they may also have thought that actually his local popularity he could see him through. Yeah, Miranda, finally, a long time ago, you used to work for the great Paddy Ashdown and you've seen Lib Dem by-election victories come and go. 
Is this the start of a big Lib Dem revival? Look, it's a fantastic boost for them because they did really, really well in the European elections. That plus this, you know, you you have some coverage, you have some momentum, you have people sort of gaining the idea of the Lib Dems having a positive aura. I mean, it really isn't long ago that they were being talked of as being dead, not just after the 2015 wipeout when they lost so many MPs and were down to six or seven. But also, I think, you know, when Change UK launched in February, a lot of people sort of rushed to say, oh, well, this is now the moderate centre, the Lib Dems are doubly dead, and actually Change UK have fallen away, and they're all sort of having to back the Lib Dems. I mean, they've still got a mountain to climb. That poll that we discussed, William, that was taken before either Boris Johnson or Joe Swinson took over as party leaders, and those two new party leaders are sort of changing the political weather on opposite ends of the Brexit polarity now. So I think there is a lot to play for in the Lib Dem strategy, and particularly this sort of maximalist cross-party cooperation that Swinson seems to be going for. As we were discussing, Mr Johnson, who's bestowed upon himself the extra title of Minister for the Union, spent his first whole week in power visiting the constituent parts of the United Kingdom. First stop, Scotland, then on to Wales, before ending up meeting the five main parties in Northern Ireland. Brexit, in particular a no-deal Brexit, were top of the agenda. Muir Dickey, you were covering Mr Johnson's visit to Scotland. Can you explain, first of all, what have the Scots got against him? Well, where do you start? I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is, of course, not all Scots are against Boris Johnson. There is a, a sizable pro-Brexit constituency in Scotland, and many people who are for Brexit are impatient with the lack of progress on it. And some of them are indeed hopeful that Boris Johnson will be able to break through and take the UK as a whole out of the United Kingdom. But I think there are more Scots who are sceptical of his abilities and in indeed uh, doubtful about his sympathy for or interest in Scotland. Over the years, he said lots of controversial things about Scotland, and he is in himself uh, an example of a kind of upper-class English person that turns off uh, many Scots. But this, probably his most basic problem is that Scotland, in the main, um, is not enthusiastic about Brexit. Uh, 62% of Scots voted to remain in 2016 to 32 who wanted to leave. And as the standard bearer, not just of Brexit, but of a potentially very rough no-deal Brexit, he doesn't exactly get people's enthusiasm flowing. And Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Tory leader, has vowed to oppose a no-deal exit. What would the ramifications be for the Scottish Tories if we left without a deal? Well, potentially very difficult. I think in as much as if a no-deal Brexit is as damaging for the UK and the Scottish economies as many economists expect, then it will play very much into the narrative of the independent-supporting Scottish National Party that, that Scotland is misgoverned by Westminster and that Scottish interests are not reflected in UK ticks. And that's difficult for Ms Davidson. It also will suggest that the Scottish Conservatives' influence in as much as she's been very strongly against no deal, doesn't carry much weight. And some members of the Scottish Conservative Party are reviving the idea of actually splitting the party away from the UK Conservatives, feeling that the kind of reputational damage that could be inflicted by Boris Johnson and a no deal Brexit is such that for the Tories to make progress or indeed even perhaps to survive, they may need to have a, a more separate Scottish identity than they do at the moment. And Vincent Bowen, you were reporting on Mr Johnson's visit to Northern Ireland, where he was trying to persuade all of the political political parties to restore the power-sharing executive at Stormont, but he started the visit with a private dinner with his parliamentary allies, the DUP. Was that a mistake? 
I think it was a mistake. The DUP was obviously very chuffed by it, but all the other parties were very angered by it. I think it fueled suspicions about Boris Johnson's impartiality when it comes to dealing with the restoration of the uh, institutions in Belfast. And there was a high degree of anger that he had chosen to spend an evening with the DUP, who are propping up the Conservative government in Westminster. And, you know, that created a lot of suspicion among the other four parties about his actual, his motives and his ability to be a neutral arbiter and interlocutor with the five parties in conjunction with the Irish government, which has its own suspicions about his impartiality in actually fulfilling his role as set out in the Good Friday Agreement. And there was a very strongly worded intervention by Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach, ahead of Mr Johnson's visit. What exactly was he saying? He said two things. One, about the after the phone call that he had with Boris Johnson, he, um, he did specifically mention the question of impartiality in the Taoiseach's readout of the contents of that conversation. But earlier, at the end of last week, he gave a wide-ranging interview on stage at the McGill Summer School in County Donegal, where he talked a lot about the constitutional ramifications of Brexit and how they may affect Northern Ireland and Scotland. And he was talking about how a hard Brexit and a really destructive crash-out for the UK from the European Union would have extreme ramifications in Northern Ireland, including constitutional ramifications, which would persuade liberal unionists and liberal sort of pro-union people in Northern Ireland generally, question the continuing presence of Northern Ireland inside the UK and outside the European Union. And uh, he was, you know, he was quite explicit about it. It It's a question that has been raised a thousand times on the island of Ireland, you know, uh, and Varadkar was to that extent echoing a conversation that's already going on. Which it was quite a quite a striking intervention that he made at that particular moment. It must have been a sort of quite a sort of a chastening moment, I guess, for Boris Johnson travelling around Scotland and Northern Ireland and being confronted with warnings that a no deal Brexit, which he's prepared to countenance, could lead to the splitting up of the UK. And the question, I suppose, Muir Dickey is: Will Brexit, or particularly a hard Brexit, make it more likely we'll have a another Scottish independence referendum? And this time, would the SNP win? Well, I think there's no doubt that Boris Johnson himself as a, as a, a prime minister and the prospect of no deal Brexit moves the, the kind of constitutional dial for some of that key segment of Scottish opinion. Those people who can conceivably vote for independence but voted to stay in the UK back in 2014. Some of those people are indeed alienated by the, the kind of leadership that Boris Johnson promises and, and by the prospect of no-deal Brexit. It's not as simple as saying that no-deal Brexit will lead to an, an independence referendum and that an independence referendum will be won because it raises other issues. The, the harder and the more chaotic and more difficult the UK's exit from the EU is, the more difficult economically uh, Scottish independence could well become because if there's a very hard border uh, between the UK and the EU. Scottish independence, which involved rejoining the EU or being part of the single market, would mean a very hard border between Scotland and the rest of the UK. And Scotland's economic links with England in particular, but the rest of the UK as well, are absolutely vital to the economy. There's much greater trade between Scotland and England than there is between Scotland and the rest of the EU. And so any disruption there would be very costly. And also, I think uh, there 
there is a potential for some voters to be put off the idea of constitutional change uh, the harder Brexit is. And the, the kind of promises in 2014 of a smooth exit from the UK and relatively low cost, uh, borders staying open, all those kind of promises would be much more difficult to make now that we have the lessons of, of Brexit. And Vincent Boland, if the UK left the EU without a deal, how much pressure do you think there will be on both sides of the border for there to be a poll on a united island, a so-called border poll? Well, the only people who want a border poll at the moment are Sinn Féin, and that is certainly channeling the view of a lot of Sinn Féin voters in Northern Ireland. It's not necessarily channeling the position of any sort of major segment of the public in the Republic. The government is very wary of a border poll. The entire business and political establishment is terrified by a border poll. But, and you know the feeling in Dublin in particular is that Brexit has brought all of these questions rushing forward to a country that is totally unprepared and not ready for them. So there will be a lot of noise about a border poll. I suspect that it will not be forthcoming. And I think that it is obviously in the gift of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to decide that the conditions exist for a border poll to be held. But I think that Dublin would be very wary of that and would definitely want to be consulted on that by the Secretary of State before any such decision is made. And I don't, at this stage, see a border poll happening, regardless of the kind of Brexit that, that, that occurs. But a hard Brexit will definitely make, it, make the calls for a border poll louder. And when those calls become louder, then you will find that more and more people support it. But at, at the moment, I don't think that is the case. Muir Dickey from Edinburgh and Vincent Boland down a slightly dodgy line from Dublin. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Miranda, William, Muir and Vincent for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Caroline Grady and Salome Paladze. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.